Would you take out your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20? I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This summer we've been in this topical series looking at some of the prayers of the saints, these great prayers that are recorded for us that our fathers in the faith have prayed, fathers and mothers in the faith have prayed that are recorded in the Old Testament. And the theme throughout all of these has been trying to say to the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray, to come before you humbly and with thanksgiving, with boldness. And the goal in looking at all these prayers has been not that we would find a new template or a new outline to guide us in our prayers, although those can be helpful at times, but much more than that, to see the heart behind these prayers. To see the heart of the faithful saints who have prayed to the Lord throughout history, because I believe what we need most for our prayer lives to deepen and to enrich and to, to move us forward is not, we don't just need a new template. We don't just need a new outline. Yes, they can be helpful, but more than anything else, we need to see a new glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that as our eyes are open to see his grace to us in Christ, that that will draw our hearts to him. That that will give us internally from the inside out a new passion for prayer, a new boldness in coming to him as his children coming to a father. And so that's what I want us to see in these prayers is, is the heart of the prayer as well as the God to whom they are praying and to see the grace that he gives to his children. So in Second Chronicles chapter 20, we're going to see the prayer of Jehoshaphat. And I will say in a few minutes a few more words about who he is and what he's doing here. But let me read the text for us from Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. And let me ask you, if you're able, would you join me in standing today for the reading of God's holy word? <clears throat> After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? 
For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Father, this is your word, your holy, inspired, inerrant word, which is given to us that we might know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. That we might see more of your faithfulness, your holiness, your justice, and your mercy towards your people. Lord, we ask that you will give us now of your spirit, that he might open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in this portion of your word. Teach us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if we had to pick one word that would summarize what we might think of as the spirit of the age today, something that in our culture encapsulates how we feel, one word we might pick would be entitlement. Entitlement. And we have to say it's not just something that's out there, but this is an attitude that even creeps into our own hearts and infects our own prayers. How often would we have to admit that when we go to the Lord in prayer, we go because there is some problem, some trial, some difficulty has come against us, and we go to the Lord and in our minds, we have it all figured out. We have the plan. We know exactly what God needs to do. We just need to get him on board now with our plan and get him to be the muscle behind what we, need, we know needs to happen. And so what we're doing when we do that is we have great confidence in our own wisdom because we know what needs to be done. We're saying, Lord, here's the problem and here's what you need to do to fix it. We're trusting in our own wisdom and yet, possibly because we feel a little bit jaded because of past experiences or because in our impatience we're not willing to wait on the Lord, we have this doubt in our heart about whether or not the Lord is going to, to get on with doing his part of the agreement. And so we come begging in prayer and, and trying to convince him. And here's what we're doing. When, when that's the way that we pray to the Lord, that means we have great confidence in ourselves. We're trusting in our own wisdom, our plan. We know what needs to be done. But we have a little bit of doubt about the Lord, about whether or not he's going to do his part. Is he going to act on our behalf the way we know that he ought to do? You see, we have it exactly backwards. We go to the Lord with confidence in ourselves and doubt in God in our prayers. We need Jehoshaphat to teach us a better way to pray. Because what we see in his prayer is he goes to the Lord with great confidence in the power of the Lord, full confidence, absolute supreme confidence that God is sovereign over all nations. He is able, he knows exactly what needs to be done and he will do it. Likewise, he has great humility about himself. We hear those words at the end of the prayer that strike us as humble. It says, Lord, we're powerless against this great horde. We don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. He has great confidence in God and great humility in himself. That's what we need to learn to pray. That's the attitude of a Christian who's going to prayer as one who knows God as one who's trustworthy, who's one who's faithful, and knows ourself that, yes, Lord, in ourselves, we deserve nothing from your hand. We need his help, and so we're, we're humble. In fact, I would say it's not only our prayers that hinge on this attitude. It's the whole of the Christian life. It's all of our joy, all of our boldness, all of our peace, all of our confidence hinges on whether or not we are trusting in our own wisdom or whether we've humbled ourselves enough that we can trust the wisdom of the Lord. 
This is a picture of Jehoshaphat living Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And this is what it looks like to pray in light of that. Here's the context of this prayer. Let's back up a little bit so we know why is he praying like this. First of all, King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, he's one of the good guys. You know, there's good kings and there's bad kings throughout these, these books of Kings and Chronicles, and we get them mixed up, but this is one of the good guys. He is, look back at chapter 17. He is a righteous king. He's a strong, mature, courageous king. Look at chapter 7, verse 3, where it says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. And all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. Verse 6, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord as he walked in the path of his father, David. This was a righteous, strong, mature, Christian, believing man. And yet, he prays, Lord, I don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. So first thing to see is that a prayer like that, that's, that's humble, that just confesses our ignorance and our weakness and our inability, that's not a sign of weakness in the Christian life. That's not a sign that you're an immature believer. That's not a sign that you haven't learned what you're supposed to learn if you pray a prayer like that. In fact, we would say exactly the opposite, wouldn't we? A prayer like this where you have great confidence in the Lord's ability and where you exhibit a true humility for yourself that's the mark of a mature believer. That's the mark of a man or woman of God who has walked with God, who knows his power and his grace, who is able to acknowledge our own weakness and inability and smallness. This is a sign of a, a believer that he prays in this way. Not only so, but this is a time when Jehoshaphat is doing good things. He's doing good things. He is reforming the worship of Israel. We read about King Jehoshaphat. He was one who cut down the Asherah poles, these idolatrous means of worship that the Israelites had built. He cut them down. He got that stuff out of the temple, and he has been reforming their worship and reforming their judicial system to bring it in line with God's justice. He's, when we read in chapter 20, verse 1, where our text starts out and it says, after this, well, you say, after what? Well, that's what it's after. It's after his reforms. After he's trying to renew the nation of Judah to bring them back in line with the word of God, he's doing all these good things, and that's when these difficulties come. That's when he looks up and finds a, a massive horde of the enemy outside the gates. Isn't that often how it is? Isn't that often how it is where we feel like, Lord, we've been trying so hard, we've been so faithful, we've been doing our part, why now is the massive horde outside my gates? Why now does trial and difficulty and, and trouble come against us? Well, in God's providence, that's the way it often is, isn't it? That's when trouble comes. But that is when Jehoshaphat, in verse 3, it says, Jehoshaphat was afraid, yes, I would be too, and set his face to seek the Lord. Friends, what do we do when trouble comes? What do we do when something arises that makes us afraid? He knew what you were supposed to do. He set his face to seek the Lord when he was afraid. Jehoshaphat is the only king in the Old Testament who proclaimed a national day of fasting. 
to seek the Lord, to, to set aside our plans. As the Lord says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's what Jehoshaphat is doing, seeking the Lord with all his heart, fasting in order that the Lord might be found by him. See, when trials come upon us, when, when difficulties come, it's not a sign that the Lord is hiding from his people. It's not a sign that he has stepped back. In fact, oftentimes it's an invitation to do exactly this. It's an invitation to seek the Lord, to renew our heart towards him. What, what do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you're afraid? Let's learn to seek the Lord and to do it like Jehoshaphat does. Let's look at the prayer. And I want to highlight in this prayer just these two aspects, how much confidence he has in the Lord and how much humility he has in himself and what it looks like to pray a prayer based on those two things, confidence in the Lord, humility in himself. Look at where he begins the prayer in the beginning of verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Here's the thing. This is why he starts his prayer like he does, because you can't pray well if you're not living in light of the character of God. And you can't pray well, indeed you can't live well, unless you do so in the light of the character of God to say, He is Lord. O oh Lord, the faithful God, God of our fathers who's been with us. He's the God of our fathers. How often in our prayers that we pray do we go with this thought in our mind that the God that we are crying out to is the same God Abraham cried out to? The same God Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Solomon, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, they cried to the God that we pray to. And he heard them and he was faithful. This is the God of our fathers who has been faithful to his own people all throughout time. What Jehoshaphat is doing here is he's beginning his prayer by calling to mind not only the character of God, but the history of God's blessings, the history of his faithfulness to his people. And the reason he's doing that, he is buttressing up his own heart because he knows that the real problem he's about to face is not that there is this marauding horde that's coming against him to kill him. The real problem is that in the face of difficulties and in times of trials, our hearts become prone to wander. And that if we're not careful, those trials will, will calcify our hearts. The, the Puritans, they used to say that, that the same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay. Trials will do exactly that. They will have one of two effects on your heart. Either they will soften your heart, make you more responsive to seek the Lord and to listen to his voice, or they can do the opposite and they can harden your heart. They can cause you to become bitter, cause you to become cynical. Given that difficulty of trials, he begins with the character of God. O oh Lord, God of our fathers, to review all of his covenant mercies, to say, Lord, you are good. Your mercies endures forever. Because the greatest issue at stake in our trials is the state of our heart. And just think if Jehoshaphat, in his time and place, was able to look back on the history of God's faithfulness to his people and to see what he could see from where he was and to have his heart be encouraged and to be, to be strengthened in the face of danger, how much more for us, given what we can see at our time and place, to look back on a God and say, Lord, you have never left your people. 
We have never seen the righteous go hungry. You have demonstrated your love for your people in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would come. Christ would die for us. That he who was rich yet for our sakes became poor. How much more do we see the character of God, even in reviewing the past, to have our hearts be encouraged, that we might take courage, take boldness, and the doctrine that he goes to here is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Look at what he says. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land? He says, Lord, you are in heaven. You do all that you please. This is one of the great doctrines that the Reformation re-emphasized for the church is the sovereignty of God over all things, that he is God and he alone, that he does what he pleases. No plan of his will ever fail. He rules over great and over small. Every last detail of this world is under his control. That's what he says, in your hand are power and might, so none is able to withstand you. None. Not the marauding horde that's at the gates waiting to kill him, they're not able to withstand the hand of the Lord if he should so act. I remember um, almost 15 years ago now, after September 11th, 2001, I was in St. Louis that day. I was uh, in the middle of seminary and classes were canceled for the rest of that day after the news broke and we had a prayer meeting in the chapel. And I remember I was sitting in the chapel waiting for it to begin and sort of with the, the pastoral training brewing, I remember thinking, what in the world do you say at a time like this? Thinking, I, I'm so glad I'm not in charge of leading this prayer meeting because where do you begin in the face of such unimaginable tragedy? And Brian Chapel, who was the president of the seminary at the time, walked up to the stage and he, he just began with the catechism. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy wise and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. He said it just like that, with that emphasis, all his creatures and all their actions. Because what we needed to know at a time of unimaginable disaster is that God is in charge. That there is not a single sparrow anywhere on this earth who would fall to the ground apart from the knowledge of God, our Heavenly Father that he rules over all things, and particularly when bad things happen, God is in charge of those too. And there is no trial that will come to us that has not first passed through his loving, fatherly hand, that he has not first given permission to that trial to come into our lives, to refine us, to test us, to cause us, like Jehoshaphat, to seek the Lord. That's why we need the sovereignty of God for the sake of our heart, it's true, but we need it because it's comforting. It's useful. Think of Job. What did Job need in the time of his trial? Well, if the last several chapters of Job are any indication, he needed a lesson in the sovereignty of God. To know that God was in charge of all things, that he had not been abandoned. God does not abandon anybody. What did Joseph need? When his life had gone so awry and his brothers had wanted to kill him and then sold him into slavery and had been taken from his family with no hope of ever seeing them again, he had no idea. And what does he say to his brothers at the end? He says, you 
intended evil against me, but God meant it for good. What sustained Joseph in those days of suffering was that he knew the sovereignty of God, that even in the midst of difficulty and trial, God had a plan, that God intended it for a purpose, and he could take hope and he could take courage in that. What he needed was to go to the sovereignty of God, just like Jehoshaphat, starting here to say, Lord, the mighty hordes are at the gate. You are God in heaven and you alone, and none can withstand your hand. Now, what's so great about starting a prayer with the sovereignty of God is not only that it's true, which it is, but that it's, it's, it's essential for us if we're going to come before God with the proper humility. It's essential for coming before God with the proper humility, and we'll come back to this in a moment, but here's the thing. When he ends this prayer by saying, Lord, we don't know what to do, the only reason he could say that is because he knew God did know what to do. See, if, if he's like me I, and has just a little tinge of being a control freak, you have to know that somebody is in charge. Somebody is, is in control. Somebody is running these things. And, and if it's not God, well, maybe it has to be me. And, and so if I have that spirit in my heart, I could never pray a prayer like, we don't know what to do. That would be terrifying to admit that. But when you believe in the sovereignty of God, and when your heart is comforted by resting in the fact that, you know what? God is in charge over all things. I, I'm then free to pray an honest prayer and say, Lord, it's true. I don't know what to do. I'm not in charge. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I have no wisdom for this. But Lord, our eyes are on you. And he gets there because first he believes and he confesses the sovereignty of the eternal God. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Here again, he's going back, reviewing the past, reviewing the blessings of the history of salvation. Lord, this is what you've done. For the Old Testament saints, that's what they look to, the Exodus, that God took them when they were slaves and he redeemed them and he brought them into the promised land. And they would look back on that and say, Lord, did you not do that? Did you not save your people? And again, can we not look back with so much greater clarity and so much greater knowledge and say, Lord, you've sent your only son. If he who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's the logic of Paul in Romans 8. Great, great confidence in the power of the Lord. Now, here's the second part of Jehoshaphat's prayer. He has confidence in the Lord, which allows him then to have humility in himself. Because he's so confident in the Lord, he's able to be humble as he ought to be with respect to himself. Here's the, he's getting into the request now. In the beginning of verse 8, he's just transitioning into it where he says, They have lived in it and built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, now what are they saying? He's pretty much quoting here from the prayer that we looked at several weeks ago of Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon prayed his prayer of dedication for the temple. And you remember what we said, he, he really wasn't praying about the temple, was he? He was praying about the people. And he was confessing their sins ahead of time. Because he knew what would happen. And he said, Lord, if this would happen to them, and they cry out to you, would you listen, would you hear, would you forgive, and would you save? Or Lord, maybe this is going to happen. Would you save them at that moment? And this is what they're saying. When they quote from it here and say, if disaster comes upon us, 
the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, before your na- for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear, and you will save. So they're, they're crying out to the Lord, calling on that legacy of faith, and asking him to forgive, asking him to act, asking him to save. And see, we read a passage like this, there's, there's not a single indication in this passage that the Lord has sent these hordes against them because of sin. We don't, we don't get a single note of that, that, that they have sinned and therefore the Lord is judging them. And yet, Jehoshaphat draws on this previous prayer of repentance. He doesn't assume his own innocence. He says, Lord, forgive and save. Even though we don't know that every trial is, it comes because of sin. In fact, we know that some don't. And there's no hint in this passage that it's because of sin. But nevertheless, Lord, will you hear and will you save your people? And here, he, when he gets to verse 12, after a few verses of, of complaint before the Lord pouring out his heart to him, we get to verse 12. Here's the one request of the prayer. Our God, will you not execute judgment on them? Just like Abraham, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Lord, will you not exercise your righteousness and your justice in judging the enemies of your people? But I want us to see what else is in verse 12. It's the end of this verse. There are three expressions of the humility of Jehoshaphat in his last verse where he says, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Three expressions of humility. First, where he says, we are powerless. Lord, we're powerless against this problem, this horde that is coming against us. This, see, this is usually what drives us to prayer. Tim Keller said, most of us will never learn how to pray until we have to. We don't learn how to pray until there's something in our life that is so obviously out of our control that we feel we no longer have the option of trusting in our own wisdom, in our own strength, we have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, we're powerless. We're powerless against this great horde. You see, oftentimes, isn't it true that, that we tend to live with the delusion that we're in charge? Don't we tend to live with that? And it, it, it colors how we pray. And, it, and we live there until something comes along that makes it so painfully obvious to us that we're not in control. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's some other disease. And you're faced with that and you have to admit, Lord, I thought I, I, thought I had life under control, but there's nothing I can do about this. I'm powerless about it. Maybe it's children. Hasn't God given us children to keep us humble? To let us know? See, one of my precious darlings is coming up on two years old soon and He's got the spirit of the two-year-old already. The spirit of the two-year-old who, who's testing boundaries and, and beginning to have his own opinions and beginning to feel strongly about them. And I, I realize sometimes that he'll be doing one thing and I speak to him and I tell him to stop and nothing happens. He doesn't stop. Or he'll be walking one way and I'm calling out to him, Ezra, Ezra, stop, Ezra, stop. And he just keeps going as far as he can. And I'm, I'm hit with the fact that God spoke and literally worlds came into being. I speak, and literally nothing happens. I'm confronted with the fact that there are some things I am completely out of control for. I have no power in this. That is good. It helps to keep us humble. Whatever it is, there are always things in life 
that drive us to the humble realization, Lord, I'm not in charge. We are humbled by life, and that's what drives us to prayer. And, and brothers and sisters, if we knew ourselves better, it wouldn't take big events like that, would it? If we had a better grasp on the reality of our, our weakness, that we're not as strong as we think we are, we would know our need, we'd go to Jesus quicker. We don't have the power. Second, he says, we do not know what to do. Not only do we not have the power to face the trials in our life, but most of the time, we don't even have the wisdom that is necessary for us to face the trials in our lives. And this is what we said, is that it's good for us then to know the sovereignty of God. Because we don't have to have the wisdom. God has the wisdom. And this is an opportunity for us then to to do what? To have faith. To trust. To trust in the Lord that, that he does know what to do. And you know what? It gives us the freedom to become like little children. The great thing about little children is they have no doubt that daddy knows what to do and that he can fix it, that he can make it okay, that they can run to him with full confidence and say, and they know that they don't know what to do, but it's okay. Daddy's here. He knows what to do. See, that's the, the confidence that unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom because that's what it is to pray to our Heavenly Father, to trust in his sovereignty and therefore to humble ourselves and say, Lord, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. Isn't it often our plans that hamper our prayer? Isn't it, isn't it often our plans that, that we have a sense that we do know what to do? We have some ideas about how things should go, and because of that, we trust in those rather than trusting the Lord. If we could be just a little more shaken, just a little bit more doubtful, with a healthy God-given doubt about our own wisdom, perhaps we would be quicker in going to the Lord with great boldness and confidence and saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. And here's the third expression of humility. It's the very end of the verse. He says, but our eyes are on you. You see, that is actually the true definition of humility, is following Jesus. That is the true definition of humility, is keeping your eyes on him and being willing to take everything in your life and put it on the table and say, Lord, I'm following you and therefore everything else is up for, up for debate. I put everything under your lordship and say that there will not be a single aspect, any single area of my life that I reserve beyond the scope of your authority. It's all on the table. I'm following you. Our eyes are on you. That is what it is to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. And that's humility. See, there's no such thing as, as saying that you're a Christian and yet reserving part of your life away from the rule of Jesus and saying, Lord, you can tell me what to do in these areas and I'll listen, I'll listen to you, but, but this is off limits. That is refusing to say our eyes are on you. But when our eyes are on Christ and we're following him, that means what he says we will listen and we will do. And when he demands a portion of our life that, that we were guarding so closely, it means being willing to say, Lord, we don't know what to do about that, but our eyes are on you and we'll trust you and we'll follow where you lead. Even though we're going into that completely blind to what might happen, Lord, our eyes are only on you. Everything in life is, is under the lordship of Christ. You see, when we are praying, we're not inviting God to be a consultant. 
We're not inviting him to give us some wisdom and then we'll take that into account along with our wisdom and see how things line up. We're not inviting him to be a consultant. We're inviting him to be Lord. When we go to him and ask for his guidance, when he gives it, we obey. When he gives his teaching, we listen. And when he speaks and when he has spoken to us in our word, it means we put our lives under the authority of Scripture and say, Lord, you're not a consultant giving advice. You're a Lord teaching, directing, leading, and we will follow. Our eyes are on you. And so the question becomes, if we're going to pray like Jehoshaphat, how do we get there? How do we learn this kind of radical confidence and boldness in the sovereignty and goodness of God that is accompanied at the very same time by such a sweet humility and childlike innocence in ourselves? How do we get to that point? Well, it's only going to be through Christ. You see, what's so amazing about the gospel is that only the gospel of the grace of God shown to us through the death of Christ on the cross, only that has the power to accomplish both of these things at the same time. Only studying, looking at, meditating, delighting in the cross of Christ will at the same time raise your confidence in the sovereignty of God, raise your ability to trust him as a loving father, to see that everything he does, he does for you. And at the same time, it will give you a new humility. It will bring you up in confidence in the Lord and and down as you find your greatest delight, your greatest joy is in humbling yourself before the Lord. Humbling yourself when you see how much he loved you, even in your sin. How much he was willing to give for you, although you deserve none of it. How far he was willing to humble himself on your behalf. Only the gospel can free you from having to have your own way, from having to be in charge. It frees you from having to be wise. And it invites you to trust in the wisdom of God and to become like little children. When we know the love of God for us through Christ, we're free. And our prayers then become, I believe, so much sweeter, so much richer, At the same time, so much more empowering to know that confidence of going before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Prayer no longer is is feeling like it has to be some kind of power play to convince God that we deserve his answers, that we have been good enough today for him to reward us with some kind of blessing. Prayer is simply confidence in his love and righteousness and total humility that, no, Lord, we don't know what to do. Look at chapter 20, verse 14, because I want us to see what happens. Verse 14, after he prays, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah. Jump down to verse 15, and he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. That's the answer to the prayer. The answer, he says, Lord, we don't know what to do. And the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Jehaziel, the prophet. He says, here's what God says to you. He says, it's okay, don't be afraid. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. And look at verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. 
the battle hasn't even happened yet. The, the horde is still outside the gate. They've still got their weapons. They're still scowling at them. They're still planning to kill them. And there is the people of Israel, face on the ground, worshiping the Lord in response to the word of the Lord. Do not be afraid. The battle is not yours, but God's. And their hearts leapt for joy, and they bowed their knees before the Lord to worship the God of their salvation before the battle had even begun. That's the joy of communion with Christ through prayer. The joy of a faithful disciple who knows the love of God in Christ, trusts him, and humbles himself, experiences the joy of God in worship. Let's pray together to the Lord. Father, we're so glad for Christ that you saw us in our sin and did not despise us, but Father, you loved us. You've called us to yourself. You gave your only son to die for us that we might be forgiven, redeemed, set free, and adopted into your family to be sons and daughters of the king. And so, Father, we ask that you will strengthen in us our confidence in your goodness and give us a new freedom to humble ourselves that we might know the joy of worshiping you, our Father, that we might bow the knee of our hearts in prayer and adoration in worship. Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. May he alone be praised. Amen.